0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan.
1: Aaron Judge once said, I know I wouldn't be a New York Yankee if it wasn't for my mom the guidance she gave me as a kid growing up, knowing the difference from right and wrong, how to treat people, how to go the extra mile and put in extra work, all that kind of stuff. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look
2: at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone.
1: Folks, talk to us. Give us your feedback or questions at christianquestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive Seeker Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything we cover. Look for the Seeker Rewind button on our episode pages. And another great companion is our all-new study questions tool, an easy-to-follow, single-page of Questions tied to scriptures for a great personal study or for your Bible study group. Check them out by clicking on the Bible Study tab on our homepage. And we also do video. Look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com/YouTube. And what's on the table for today?
2: Well, Rick, our question is: How do we become too desensitized to sin? And our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.
1: Okay, so have we become too desensitized to sin? Right is right and wrong is wrong. A few generations ago, Morality and ethics seemed simple. There were things you knew you should and should not do. There were principles you knew you needed to be present when it came down to making an appropriate decision. There were also societal consequences for stepping outside of those lines. Now, now morality seems to have gone rogue, and the idea of ethics seems to have been redefined to fit personal preference. When we say right is right now, we really mean Right is what I feel is right for me, and wrong? Well, there isn't much that's wrong except when you try to infringe on my personal feeling of what's right. So, coming up in today's podcast, let's face it, saying that these things are becoming more and more morally corrupt doesn't get anyone's attention anymore. It just makes you sound old. Well, in segments one and two, we lay out what sin actually is and reveal how full societies have slid down sin's rabbit hole. Does our desensitization to sin come more from peer pressure or from our own internal weaknesses? In segments three and four, we bring each of these things to light with some actually very surprising conclusions. And finally, if we're supposed to be so opposed to sin Shouldn't we be calling out immorality wherever we see it? Our last segment shows us the plain truth on this important question.
2: Rick, what has happened? <laughs> Does the whole concept of sin need to be reevaluated? You know, I don't think it needs to be
1: reevaluated. I think it needs to be reawakened. <laughs> I think that's really <laughs> what we need to be doing here. So today we're talking about that very important question Have we become too desensitized to sin. So, John, let's start out with some really basic things. What does sin mean in the Bible? You know, first, the Old Testament. There's two words that are most often translated sin. What, what do they mean, just basic definitions?
2: Well, the first is an offense, sometimes habitual sinfulness and its penalty, also an offender. And the second is to miss, hence figuratively and generally to sin. Positively led astray, condemn.
1: Okay, so an offense, an offender, uh, and the penalty that 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 is attached to it to miss. So, so it really does give you a sense of okay, it's something that isn't correct. That's what that's what the, these words are saying from the Old Testament. The New Testament, there is a word that has different variations that is defined as sin, and just just again breeze through. All of the definitions of the, one, two, three, f- the three, three or four different uh, basic words.
2: Well, the first is to miss the mark. The next is sin and evil deed. The next is to sin. And the next is uh, equivalent to.
1: Okay, so equivalent to missing the mark. Okay. Yes. So you've got all these words. And to miss the mark is a really, really good definition of sin. So anything less than perfection Anything less than the bullseye misses the mark.
2: Oh, no, we're in trouble. (laughs) And
1: that's the point. And that's the point. But see, we live in a time and a society where nobody wants to be in trouble like that. We want to be recognized for our individuality. And so the idea of biblical sin is to miss the mark. And basically, like you said, we're in trouble because which one of us always hits the mark?
2: Neither. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: right. (laughs) So, you know, we we need to understand that we're outside of God's grace naturally. And that doesn't go over well in a society where everybody is supposed to accept everything, does it? No. No. Okay. All right. So let's start off. Let's start off with a bang, shall we? (laughs) <laughs> We're going to start off with a, a soundbite from What Makes Something Right or Wrong from Stephen Fry. And this is, this is a humanistic perspective. So this is not a God-fearing perspective. This is the opposite. This says, no, gods are fictitious, imaginative, and humanity is the core and the centerpiece of everything. So right and wrong from the humanistic perspective from Stephen Fry.
3: What makes something right or wrong. Some people believe that what is right and wrong never varies from situation to situation and that it can be expressed in constant and unchanging commandments. They often look to religious texts or authorities to discover what they think a God wants them to do. A humanist view of morality is different. Humanists do not look to any God for rules but think carefully for themselves about what might be the best way to live. This approach means we have always to be empathetic and think about the effects of our choices on the happiness or suffering of the people, or sometimes other animals, concerned. We have to respect the rights and wishes of those involved, trying to find the kindest course of action or the option that will do the least harm. We have to consider carefully the particular situation we find ourselves in and not just take any rule or commandment for granted. This is pretty interesting.
1: You know, from one side of the situation, he's saying, okay, you know, it, it comes from within and, you know, humanism is is where everything stems from. And he, he said, you know, people who believe in God, you know, believe in these commandments, these unchanging commandments that never vary. Yeah, like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. Those things, I don't know, are you, you want to debate whether those things vary or not? I mean, come on. Yeah, really. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, he says it, it's it comes from those be, uh, humanists that we think carefully for ourselves. Really. Look at the average person and see how carefully they think about mor- moralistic things outside of what's good for them. He says they have to respect and they have to consider well wait are you making rules for others who are you to make the rule for that person are you more the human than they are see so even That's a with good well you know and even within the description what he's trying to say is you know we should be coming to a collective agreement on these things and i and i challenge where is that collective agreement so As religion has gone astray in so many ways, humanism has deeply gone astray as well. I guess that's my point. So how are we going to deal with this question? Have we become too desensitized to sin? We're going to use a prophecy from Isaiah to draw out some general principles on appropriately dealing with sin and righteousness. Now, this prophecy was about Israel, but we have a lot that we can learn from it. It's going to be Isaiah chapter 5, verses 18 through 24, and right now, Jonathan, let's just do verses uh, 18 and 19 of of Isaiah 5.
2: Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood, and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let me make speed. Let him hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it.
1: So in this verse, it sounds kind of weird, you know, dragging dragging iniquity with the cords of falsehood. You know, what does that mean? He's saying as if with cart ropes, and that's the key. In ancient times, you had ropes that were attached to the cart that the animal would pull. You know, that you tie it to the oxen or whatever it was that was pulling the cart. So he's saying, drag iniquity with the cords, with the ropes of falsehood. So the iniquity is the cart. And you're saying you're going to drag it behind you with falsehood. You're dragging darkness and sin with falsehood, and you're mocking God along the way, who say, let him, God, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Where is God? Let him show himself. Okay, then we'll believe. How many people have said that to us? Many. many. (laughs) You know, okay, (laughs) if God is God, why doesn't he just reveal himself to me? We're going to hang on to that thought, because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Just a quick commentary from John Gill on these particular verses, on his perspective on these ropes and and
2: iniquity and so forth. The prophet returns to the wicked again, and goes on with the account of their sin and punishment. And he describes, Such who draw it to themselves, seek after it, and willingly commit it, who rush and force themselves into it, who solicit it, who seek and take all occasions and opportunities of doing it and take a great deal of pains along it and make use of all arguments, reasonings, penances they can devise to engage themselves and others in the practice of it, which are all cords of vanity, fallacious, and deceitful
1: so what he's, he's, he's just laying out all of these ingredients that go that are part of these cords of iniquity that just drag sin behind us the, the, these verses give us a clear picture of the idolatry of sin replacing what we think God's presence should look like with all of the things we want for our own self-satisfaction and Jonathan the key is we're replacing what we think God's presence should look like not what it really should look like. But our perspective, well, because I don't see it this way, therefore I can do it that way. It's a great way to get get what you want.
2: That's right. Selfishness uh, abides.
1: (laughs) Right, because you're proclaiming to God Almighty, you should present yourself this way. And if you don't, well, then I'm just going to do it my way. Who became God in that interchange? The individual. That's right. Absolutely. Psalm 10, verse 2,
2: and then verse 11. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. This is a
1: common theme. You know, the idea that God is dead or God never existed. All of that is wrapped up in, in Psalm chapter 10, especially verse 11. God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He won't see it. We like to look at this stuff and say, God doesn't matter. I matter. And if you want to be desensitized to sin, that's a great way to start. So, Jonathan, our point as we wrap up this segment for making sense of a desensitized
2: world. Whenever we mock God's seeming lack of attention, it always opens the door for blatant sin and darkness to flourish. And, Rick, I was thinking um, of a song, I often do, um, from Bette Mittler: God is Watching Us from a Distance. And if we can just realize our lives are an open book, how much more faithful and more accountable and full of integrity would we be if we remembered that?
1: And, you know, the the idea of of opening up to the fact that God is watching, and he may not be reacting, but he is watching, is a very powerful way to begin to understand that our our sensitization to sin has to— begin somewhere somehow so something as basic as mocking or respecting God is a basis for the whole for whole societies to crumble or to flourish
2: is being desensitized to sin really as simple as mocking God and opening the floodgates of darkness
0: We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic.
1: While nothing that breaks our society down is ever simple, disrespecting God really is a good place to begin our understanding. Satan's first sin took place in his mind as he thought of himself rising up to be like God. Eve's first sin was to entertain a contrary thought to what God had emphatically said. And Jonathan, the interesting thing here, both of these sins were were mental sins on Eve's part and Satan's part. And both of them clearly defied something that was not in place at that point, but as we look back, we can see God's way. And they clearly defied the first commandment that was given to Israel. Thou shalt not have, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That commandment is an internal commandment. It is being spoken to the heart and mind of each individual. Do not have other gods before me is what God is saying. You can't tell necessarily if someone's got other gods before them. That's where the second commandment comes in. Don't make any graven images. So, don't make any outward manifestation of something that's happened inside your head, so I submit to you that the first major point in being sensitized to sin is to always remember the first commandment: "Have no other gods before me because it's that's a commandment that goes that is fulfilled in your head.
2: I like it, and now Satan created himself as a God, right, and his focus left that immediately right. Eve was a little different. She wanted wi- God's wisdom. She wanted knowledge, um, you know, the knowledge of, of tree of good and evil. Ooh, that's going to make me wise, right? So, but that I don't think that meant that she gave up on God. But whose advice did she follow? Satan's. So she
1: put Satan before God.
2: Gotcha. Had no
1: another God before him. So it really is a powerful thought. We're going to come back to this several times. Let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 5, this prophecy we're talking about. Now, uh, verses 18 through 24, we're just going to take verse 20 at this point.
2: Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.
1: You know, it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I mean, shouldn't this, this stuff be obvious? Uh, what does the average person not see? Well, why does the average person not see this happening? And the answer is because evil is made to look good. It's made to look more exciting. Good is boring, right? There's no, there's no thrill in good. But with evil, ha, 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 you know, when you start to do things in a different kind of way, well, that's the, the attraction. And where the attraction is, there lies the difficulty. Because if it's not godly, then it's sin. And we kind of say, well, it's really not that bad. I mean, how many times have we said that? Well, it's really not that bad. Too many. <laughs> yeah, does it mean that it's that good? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you got to put these things in, in perspective. Let's go back to Stephen Fry, the, the humanism perspective, uh, what makes something right or wrong. And here again, he's going to talk a little bit more about morality from within.
3: This way of thinking about what we should do is explicitly based on reason, experience and empathy and respect for others, rather than on tradition or deference to authority. It might sound hard, but luckily most of us do it most of the time without really thinking about it. Morality is not something that comes from outside of human beings, gifted to us by an external force like a god, when we look at our closest relatives in the animal world, we see the same basic tendencies we recognize in ourselves. Affection, cooperation, all the behavior needed to live in groups and thrive. It is clear that our social instincts form the basis of morality and that they are a natural part of humanity.
1: You know, I could have so much fun with all this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. You know, But using animal, the animal kingdom, say they, they live in social groups and thrive. And what happens when one social group crosses another social group?
2: They kill and attack.
1: That's right. That's Evil. R- that's right. They, they 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 cross paths. You know, he says. You know, his morality is based on respect for others. Show me in our world where respect for someone else is more important or as important as my respect for me. It doesn't fit that. You know, it's a nice thought that he's bringing up, Jonathan. But it is not practically applied on any major scale except in the intellectual minds of those that think this way. And Look, I I give them credit for for wanting to raise up a high standard. I really, really do. But look at what's actually happened and what he's describing is just simply not real. With most people. Humanism is telling us we are the source of enlightenment. We don't need anything bigger or authoritative. The big problem with this enlightenment is that it is polluted.
2: And Rick, that's because we're all tainted. We're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And that's our problem.
1: It is. It is. And we are all subjective because of our perspective. And so, you know, you got to have something bigger than you to draw you higher so here's how entire societies have become desensitized to sin this is really kind of interesting all are given the testimony of nature looking at romans chapter 1 verses 20 to 25 we're going to break it down into a lot of pieces
2: for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what he has made so that they are without excuse
1: okay You've got the creation of the world, the vast complexity of creation gives us cause to acknowledge a much higher power than us. We are given cause to acknowledge it because the, 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 uh, the, the ability for creation to work together, for stars to not run into each other, for, 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 for life to even exist is phenomenally beyond anything we can begin to comprehend and yet we say it happened by chance. I mean, you got to use your head on something like that. So we're given all of this knowledge, yet, verse
2: 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened.
1: So it says they knew God but didn't honor him. They knew God because they saw his creation and said, Wow, that's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, so they're not saying, Hey, God did this. But what's happening is because they're not giving God the credit, The act of ignoring God creates an emptiness in man's thinking, which darkens man's hopes, because they're not seeing light from above. They're seeing light from within, and they, the created, we, the created, are saying, look how great we are. How did we get here, by the way? How did we get to be so great? Did we do this? No. But we miss that part, and we put ourselves on this pedestal of being something special that Simply happened, rather than was given its place by God above.
2: Uh, verse twenty-two. Professing to be wise, they became fools.
1: Okay, and the word for fools in the in the in the Greek English lexicon, what is it?
2: It means to be foolish, to make flat tatel- tasteless. And, and a good example
1: of tasteless, same word for fools, is Luke fourteen thirty-four.
2: Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless. With what will it be seasoned?
1: So the word that says, professing to be wise, they became fools, is the same word used to describe salt as tasteless, flat, foolish, of no good use. And I think that there's something powerful, because if salt doesn't have its saltiness, it really is completely useless. It really is. So the idea of professing to be wise, because here we are, the highest creation on earth, but we are still a creation, but not admitting so, just assuming the, the role of highest, our reasoning becomes dark. Any profession of wisdom and enlightenment within a godless environment ends up ultimately being foolish. Now, it may sound good for now. Okay, humanism sounds good in the moment as you're describing it. Yeah, boy, this, this is the way we should be. Show me where it has ever happened on a wholesale, in a wholesale environment where the humanistic perspective of stepping up and rising up has been bigger and better than everything else. Matter of fact, Jonathan, in in the wars of the world, those that have been godless— now, there have been wars fought in the name of God, unfortunately. Can't, Mm. Can't get away from that. But those who have perpetrated evil in a godless sense have created far more destruction than all of the wars in the name of God, any god in history.
2: Oh, that's so true.
1: Far more, far more. Verse verse 23 of Romans uh, chapter 1.
2: And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And here is that
1: change. Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of ourselves or some beast. This foolishness seeks to replace worshiping the mighty God with self and nature worship. This is how whole societies fall apart. and this is idolatry, isn't it? Rick? It is idolatry in its in one of its biggest, biggest forms. And finally verses
2: twenty four and twenty five of Romans one. therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's what Satan did
1: in the Garden of Eden. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying societies, entire societies have done. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is the epitome of darkness masquerading as light. Worldly enlightenment thrives in darkness because it avoids God and when we avoid that which is bigger than ourselves ultimately we, we are we are thriving in darkness and the reason for this Jonathan is because the first commandment is not being followed thou shalt have no other God before me that's a simple internal heart and mind command when we miss that one everything else goes off the rails sin therefore creeps in as a counterfeit light Second Corinthians eleven
2: thirteen to fifteen, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds.
1: So you know, you get this sense that the darkness works best when it's mimicking light. It's not really following light, but it's mimicking light. Satan himself disguised himself as an angel of light to Eve and has done so throughout the ages. And the those who follow him also bring themselves as, hey, we are bringing you to enlightenment, to higher, higher ways of living. And yet what they're really doing is desensitizing us to the depth of sin because we're missing the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So, making sense of a desensitized world and looking at the way entire societies end up crumbling.
2: Becoming desensitized to sin can be a process of subtlety, disg- disguise, and attraction. Always be looking up for the true light. Subtlety,
1: disguise, and attraction. Subtlety, disguise, and attraction; Those three things really, really, really can get in the way of, of developing a really uh, strong stand that is avoiding sin. It's really sobering to realize that our entire world has gone down this desensitized road of destruction.
2: We looked at societies. Now what about me? What should I be looking out for to stay away from sin?
0: If you disagree with some of Rick and Jonathan's viewpoints, no matter your beliefs, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com or through our app by searching for Christian Questions in your app store. Our producers are feeding us your awesome comments and questions every week, so keep them coming. In this next CQ chapter, we're going 3D. Three Viewpoints.
4: Christian, Secular, and Neutral.
1: It'll be no surprise that there are strong similarities on the road to desensitization for societies and for individuals. As individual Christians, we each can govern the things we allow into our lives. We can choose to stand strong, even when surrounded by a society of those who have lost their way.
2: And Rick, it's a constant battle uh, that we're battling to keep, like you're saying, that first commandment, to keep Doing what God would want us to do, stand for what's right, um, be be a person of integrity. Um, it, it's but it's it's a struggle. We've got to work at it,
1: yeah, and 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 working at it means understanding it because you can work and work and work really hard um, on on something, but if you're not doing the right work, you're not going to get the right result. So you can say, well, I'm going to work hard on, on you know, being sensitized to sin. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay at home and not do anything so that I don't see anybody or talk to anybody, and that way I won't have to deal with sin. Well, you know what? That's not going to, that's not going to grow you into being sensitized. We have to be able to apply the Word of God in our lives. How do you do that? Well, you got to deal with the peer pressure. You got to deal with all of the stuff that goes on around you, and you know we're going to begin to develop into that thought here with the Isaiah chapter five scripture. Remember, it's Isaiah five eighteen to twenty four. Now to verses twenty one and twenty two.
2: Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink.
1: So, you know, okay, it's interesting that it kind of picks that out. What are those who are heroes in drinking wine and, you know, good good at at drinking contests? I mean, is it saying that people who get involved in that are the worst people in the world? No, it's an example. It's an example of going down a road in which you end up losing control, in which you end up losing your senses to something external. That's what it's talking about. So here we not only see runaway pride, but we now add the power of peer pressure into the mix. And Jonathan, to be desensitized to sin comes really easily if we just follow the crowd, follow along, because the pressure is too great to stand against. So, you know, if you're not going to be that salmon that's swimming upstream, we end up being easily, easily desensitized. Let's go to another soundbite. This is from David Platt. He is a Christian minister, and this was from a YouTube video. Where he talks about we soften sin. And, and this, is, this is interesting because he's really nailing down some of the subtleties of how we make sin, oh, it's not really quite so bad. Let's listen.
4: Many of us, not most of us, would say, I sin, I know I sin. So we're probably not denying sin, like it seems like sin is being denied here in First John. But while we might not outright deny sin, like it seems like it's happening here, I think we do find ways to soften sin, to justify it, to rationalize it, and do we redefine it in other terms? We say, uh, "I mean, it's just an impure thought. Like I'm a man; it's just normal." There's just one. One website for a minute. Like it's not hurt anybody. We gossip about others. Not a second thought.
1: He, he brings up some very interesting uh, perspectives there. You know, the the old the the great common phrase: uh, "It's not going to hurt anybody, or nobody cares. Nobody cares. So I can do it because nobody cares." Well, wait, is it right or is it wrong? Well, it's wrong, but 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 who cares? Nobody cares. And when you go down that road, Jonathan, you have taken all of the, the the governors in your life away. And when you are with others who say, look, don't worry, Jonathan, don't worry. Nobody cares anyway. It's not going to hurt anybody. Just it's okay. Don't. Yeah, it'll be fun. That's being desensitized.
2: And that's trouble.
1: Yeah. And, and a lot of it comes from peer pressure. So there's three subtle peer pressure steps to avoid. That would desensitize us to sin now these come from psalm chapter one the very first psalm the very first two uh the first verse of the very first psalm is a profound lesson in these steps to avoid so what's the first step to avoid uh in these subtle peer pressure steps
2: common direction
1: okay common direction we need to avoid common direction walking along with those who seek darkness and not god's light Psalm chapter 1, the first part of verse 1.
2: How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, who does
1: not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, The idea is not to walk along the pathway where you're being shown how to to be desensitized. That's not what we want. And it's saying, blessed is the man who doesn't do this. Don't try this at home. That's what Psalm 1-1 is telling us. Okay, A good, a good uh, companion scripture is Proverbs thirteen twenty.
2: He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm.
1: So instead of walking with the counsel of the wicked, it says he who walks with wise men will be wise. And when we talk about wisdom, it's always scripturally, it's always godly wisdom, not just the wisdom of this world. But it's godly wisdom. So the first step to avoid is the common direction, okay? And that's the easiest one to uh, to get involved with. I'll just go along for the ride for a little bit. You know, it's not going to hurt. Who's going to care? Who's going to even know? You know, (laughs) whenever we say those things, that's when we get into trouble. What's the second step to avoid? Common interest. Okay. So we had common direction, and now we have common interest. Pausing to consider their path. And that's the second part of verse 1 of Psalm 1.
2: Nor stand in the path of sinners.
1: Okay, so you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in their path either. The idea of standing, Jonathan, is you've been walking and now you are more engaged. And so you're stopping and you're, 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 you're being, being fed more easily. You're, you're, you are now an attentive audience. So common direction can be kind of curious common interest is much more than that.
2: That's right. You went way too far.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and so now you you are delving in a little bit. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 11 to 12.
2: Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil for the man who speaks perverse things. Now you're not going to have discretion. You're not going to have understanding
1: if you decide that, hey, I want to be on this path. So what you've done is you've thrown away your discretion and your understanding and God's protection as well. So common direction is a peer pressure thing. Come on, it's not going to be so bad just for a few minutes. Common interest, that few minutes turns into, huh, there's something to this. I'd like to know more about it. Then the third step to avoid, you know, the face that you made is just, I wish we had camera just for that. That face like, no, don't go here. What's the third step?
2: Fellowship.
1: Okay. Fellowship with those who seek ungodly things. the end of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1.
2: Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So
1: we have to process walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. You see how you're slowing down? And not only have you stopped, but you're comfortable fellowship. You're comfortable. So now you're in the midst of the darkness, and you're enjoying it, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 26, verses 4 and 5 is a good companion scripture for us.
2: I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. These are great short statements. I don't
1: sit with deceitful men. I don't go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I won't sit with the wicked. So it's it's saying again and again and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But we have to be able to stand up to that, up for that.
2: But to be in the how blessed is the man, we need to stay in context with God and not the worldly.
1: Right, because the, the verse started, how blessed is the man who doesn't... Do these things. Right. He doesn't have common direction doesn't have common interests, and doesn't have fellowship with evil and darkness. Okay, so by avoiding these three developmental steps, we can look forward to what the second verse of Psalm chapter 1 has to offer us. So Psalm chapter 1,
2: verses 2, and
1: then verse 3.
2: But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And wherever he does, whatever he does, he prospers.
1: So the, the, the contrast of traveling down the road and getting comfortable with the wicked is being planted by streams of water. So the idea of being planted, Jonathan, is you're immovable. Yes. And the being, Firm. Right. <laughs> being planted by a stream of water means you're immovable in a place that will always nourish you no matter what's going on around you. That's perfect. That's how we avoid peer pressure. So, Jonathan, you and I were talking earlier, and a very, very, very dear Christian friend of ours passed away just the other day, and yes. uh, you had wanted to just say a few words about her.
2: Sure. Sister Calanthea was a big support uh, to Christian questions, always encouraged us when we saw her. Uh, she was from Jacksonville, Florida, and anytime we saw her, big smile, wanting to know how the the podcast is going and always encouraging and and making, it, you know, us feel special. Um, and she just had a glow about her everywhere she went. And one of her favorite scriptures uh, was from Job 23.10. And it really reminded me of this Psalm 1, verse 2 and 3. It says, He know the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that really reminded me of her steadfastness to to let her light shine and encourage and help others in, in her life.
1: Yeah, you know, when I think of her, I think of one of those trees firmly planted by the stream of water. Yielding fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever it, it does, it prospers. And, you know, again, she has been a wonderful, wonderful example. I just wanted to mention, um, especially to her family if you're listening— how we are really, really sad with you at her loss, but we're also rejoicing at her potential reward. It is just a wonderful thing. The faithfulness that she displayed, uh, she, her example will live on. Amen. So again, to avoid the peer pressure, you avoid the common direction the common interest, and then the fellowship, the deepening of the bonds with the world. Now, you know, you're going to start thinking, well, are we supposed to avoid the world completely? We're going to get to that, okay? We're not there yet, but we're going to get to that. So give us a few minutes here. The Apostle Paul gives us similar guidance, but in a reversed order in Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. And let's just do 14 to
2: 16 to start with. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, it's
1: really fascinating because he starts with don't be bound together. That's a really permanent relationship, And, and oftentimes we look at this as the marriage bond. OK, you know, and, 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 you know, the idea that Christians really should marry Christians. That's really what this is saying. But you've got all these other pieces. Let me read all the pieces in backwards order. OK, and watch how they build up to something that ends up getting you in trouble. You have an agreement and now you've got something in common. And because you have something in common, you've, you've developed harmony. And this is obviously with unbelievers. From harmony comes fellowship. From fellowship comes partnership. And from partnership comes being bound together. You see, and there's
2: this fits wow,
1: and there's the subtlety of one step to the next step to the next step. We need to be careful if we want to remain sensitized to sin. How do we do this? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first commandment. It's in your head and in your heart. What are we doing with it?
2: So, Rick, that reminds me of um, natural Israel be separate from the other nations so that you can follow these commandments of mine. And we as Christians are told um, to be justified, to be made right through Jesus' sacrifice, to be sanctified, to be set apart for holy service for God. So we to be able to do these things, we need to, to have the right focus. We do.
1: And interestingly enough, the rest of the verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, are going to show us exactly that, just in slightly different words. See, there's really no common ground for a Christian in this world. Why? Because we are, just like you said, we are set apart. So let's read the rest of these verses of uh,
2: the 2 Corinthians 6. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from amongst their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So
1: it's all about, like you said, Jonathan, being different, being separate, being being. Having a space in between. Now, look, it doesn't mean you don't have friends that are in the world. It doesn't mean you don't talk to your coworkers. It doesn't mean you're not kind to those folks. What it does mean is that your common interests are very limited. And we need to make sure that when we engage in that activity, it does not come back and live with us especially if it's activity that ends up being questionable or or, or bringing us down those roads. It's too easy. And we'll get to this later, but many Christian churches have adopted paganism and worldliness as part of their doctrine because they're attractive. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to be sensitized to avoid those things. So, making sense of a desensitized world, Jonathan, what's our final point here?
2: While we are still in the world, we are not of the world, and therefore must remain focused on godly paths, friends, and activities. And Rick, I was thinking of the other scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, and it says, be reconciled to God. So we're aliens and strangers here in this world uh, looking for our, our heavenly home, and that obviously shows that we need to be separate um, and used of the Lord.
1: But an ambassador's role is to have interplay and to, to communicate with those around them. That's so true. we're not supposed to remove ourselves, but no. we're supposed to engage, except our engagement needs to be on that higher level and that folks is just simply not easy to do we really do not have to. we do have to keep our guard up it's all too easy to give in to this or that just this one time
2: there are desensitizing dangers in society and with those around us what about from within
0: Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode. Follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes. And for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation.
1: As challenging it might be to stand up against social norms and peer pressure, it's a whole different matter when dealing with our most our, 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 our most difficult enemy, ourselves. Fighting an internal battle requires different tools, and fortunately, the Bible supplies them and shows us how to use them. So at this point, it's a matter of, okay, what about me? How do I fight me to stay sensitized to, to, to sin?
2: Well, Rick, we each have different mental, emotional, and physical weaknesses, but this can't be an excuse. We need to fight the good fight of faith. Oftentimes, we're strong, and then at times, we lose our focus, and we make mistakes, and we need to figure out how to get back up, how to continue on to serve the Lord, even though we are weak.
1: You know, and and the interesting thing about that is we can so easily use our weaknesses and say, well, you know, I'm not as strong as Jonathan, so, you know, I can never do what he does, so, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to have to be myself. And it's a great way to rationalize your way into living a subpar Christian life on your own terms rather than on the terms of God set out for you. we got to be so careful of that. So you're right. We're all different so this is a segment where it really gets into the personality of each of us and managing our ourselves to be able to stay sensitized to sin. Back to Isaiah 5, 18 to 24, we're up to verse 23.
2: Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right.
1: Okay. Justify this, this, this is terrible. Justify the wicked for a bribe. Okay? In other words, you're trying to get something for nothing. Take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. So, so you're not standing for something higher. You're standing for something convenient. When we stand for that which is convenient rather than that which is higher, we have become desensitized to sin. It's a sad way to live. Here we have internal desires and greed smothering out godly righteousness. Now, what was that first commandment?
2: Love the Lord your God. That's
1: right. Have no other God before me. Interesting thing, Jonathan, we want to add at this point is let's go to the last commandment. Thou shalt not covet. The first commandment and the last commandment are both internal. They're both in our head and in our hearts. If we have no other God before us, that's a great foundation. But now we don't need to want anything outside of that. So you get focused on godliness, and then you stay focused on godliness.
2: Stay in the middle of that sandwich.
1: That's right. The first (laughs) commandment is a mental, emotional thing, mental and emotional thing. The last commandment is a mental and emotional thing. The eight in between are all the how-tos. Okay, it's really kind of a fascinating uh, uh, compilation. Having said that, let's go back to our friend Stephen Fry from That's Humanism what makes something right or wrong and again he's talking about uh, the fact that humans make their own morality
3: but ultimately morality comes from us not from any God it is to do with people with individual goodwill and social responsibility it is about not being completely selfish about kindness and consideration towards others ideas of freedom justice Happiness, equality, fairness, and all the other values we may live by are human inventions. And we can be proud of that as we strive to live up to them.
1: I don't know, Jonathan. Uh, You know, the idea of not being completely selfish. We We live at the most selfish time in all of human history. And interestingly enough, it's also the most godless time in all of human history. You know, social responsibility, really? You know, the idea of of, of putting others first, we've lost it. The the, the audacity to say that our morality just comes from within. Well, look, folks, that's why we're so messed up. That's why so many people are so unhappy. Have you noticed that mental illness is skyrocketing right now? Have you ever wondered why that is? I will tell you why. Because we've taken all of the governors off of life. And we don't have things bigger than us to hold us down and give us guidance. And when we're left to ourselves, we self-destruct. That's the imperfect human form. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now, and let's go back to 1 John <laughs> chapter 2, verses 15 to
2: 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And of the world, if the world passed away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever.
1: See, now, this is interesting, because he was uh, Mr. Mr. Fry was saying, you know, all of this morality comes from us. Here's what comes from us. The lust, or desire of the flesh, the lust, or desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what comes from humanity. And those are the things that actually... Uh, ingratiate us into sin. These three actions, within these three actions, all sin is conceived, developed, and expressed. All sin doesn't need to have all three, but if we are sinful, at least one of these three is working in us. So let's go through three quick examples of sin. The first example...
2: Inward hidden sin that is expressed through the lust of the eyes.
1: Okay, inward hidden sin. People, Others can't necessarily see it. Matthew 5, verse 29.
2: If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for you to lose the whole whole body, which is thrown into Gehenna.
1: Okay, so your if your eye makes you stumble, if what you see... Now, see, what I see, nobody else needs to necessarily understand what I'm looking at, what I'm seeing, what I'm observing, and then what I'm desiring as a result of that. It's internal, the lust of the eyes. The eye is a, sort of the... the, the uh, the, the gateway into the mind. So we have to be really careful. So what happens when, with the sins of the mind?
2: Well, how do we stay sensitized?
1: And that's the key. How do we stay sensitized? Well, first of all, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and then thou shalt not covet. Put yourself in the place of God first, and then you don't need to desire anything bigger. Hebrews 4.16, a good practical application here.
2: Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
1: Okay, drawing near to the throne of grace, receiving mercy that gives us grace to help in time of need. So, what is that telling us? What's the overcoming principle
2: here? Well, Rick, it's prayer. The foundation of God's law for solving sin in Jesus' ransom.
1: So... Prayer is one of the foundations for managing through the desensitizing activities within our own hearts and minds, within our own eyes, for it, if, if you will. Having that sense of something higher than us and going to it. You know, and Trish just handed me a note. Trish is my wife. She's kind of our program observer here. Said man was made in God's image, so oh, we did have morality inside us originally. We did, but we didn't have the experience to back up the morality. And when Eve was tested, was given the test of her experience, she could recite what was right, but she did not follow what was right because she had a suggestion of something else that seemed more convenient, more attractive, more pleasurable. So we did have that instilled within us, but sin has deeply, deeply warped that. And again, that's why prayer is such an important part of our putting things back into the right perspective. So that first example of sin is through the lust, through the desire of what we see, what we would like to have. The second example of sin, what is it?
2: Outward, presumptuous sin that is expressed through the lust of the flesh.
1: The lust or the desire of the flesh. Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 30.
2: If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for you to lose the whole body and to go into Gehenna.
1: Okay, now, look, let's get, be, be clear on this right off the bat. Jesus isn't saying gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands, okay? He's being very dramatic to make a point that if, you're, if your hand is drawing you to do things that are not godly, cut off that action, that's what he's saying. He's not saying, take a knife to your hand. So please, don't, let's not ever, ever go there. These are, moral, are, are more publicly discernible sins of actions, the things that we do.
2: So how do we stay sensitized?
1: Well, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's how. Have one God, the God, and then do not covet. Do not look for, do not engage in, do not uh, be enticed by wanting anything more than that. 1 John 1, 9.
2: If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
1: Okay, again, we're focusing on the idea of prayer because we're looking at the internal struggles that we have to manage ourselves. Prayer is a foundation for being able to manage ourselves. But without action built on the foundation, Jonathan, you can pray all day and all night. If you don't do something about the prayer, your prayers will be end up being worthless to you
2: oh that's so true
1: we've got to live the attitude of the prayer of forgiveness and the prayer of request we've got to live in the godliness that comes comes with that so this is important the the prayer the foundation uh, as a as, as a prayer and then honesty and confession before god I, you know that there are dark 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 consequences of our sins. And we have to, we have to lay them out before God. We have to. So what's our third example of sin? First, we had the inward hidden sin through the lust or desire of the eyes. Then we had the outward presumptuous sin, the desire of the flesh. What's the third one?
2: Outward presumptuous sin that is expressed through the pride of life.
1: Okay, the pride of life. Well, it's kind of an interesting thought. Matthew 5, 22.
2: But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into Gehenna.
1: Okay, and it's interesting that Gehenna keeps coming up in all these things. You know, Gehenna is a symbol of complete destruction. That's right. Okay, it's, it's nothing more than that. It's a symbol of complete annihilation. So Jesus is saying to his followers, these are things that can take your opportunity for life away. That's how serious this is. These are sins of emotion and reckless judgment, Matthew 5.22. The reckless judgment of, of pointing your finger and, and, and being angry with and, and, and accusing and all those things, uh, your, your, your brother.
2: Um, and how do we stay sensitized?
1: Well, you know, same answer. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Have only God as your God, and then don't covet. Don't look for, don't desire something, other other things, but stay with that basic principle, and there's great blessing. James 5.16 gives us a lot to work with here.
2: Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So, This is
1: important because now it's talking about not only praying for one another, but it's talking about that mutual working together to deal with all these things. What's the overcoming principle?
2: Mutual trust and confession. This honesty can be a healing balm. And Rick, that makes me think of when you have a trusted friend in Christ and you share your weaknesses and your failures, you're showing. That you want someone to keep an eye out for you, yeah. to help you, mm-hmm. to encourage you, to keep you accountable so that you can overcome whatever road you've gone down. And it's only because you respect and trust this person that you would share this kind of mistake with.
1: So you're right. This, this honesty has the ability to be this healing balm that can just soothe when we have that mutual accountability and trust. But here's the thing, Jonathan. If we have dishonesty instead of dishonesty, dishon- dishonesty can be a healing bomb. <laughs> it's going to blow up any potential healing because now you are not laying yourself before someone else. You're, you're leading them down a, 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 a road of, dishon- of, of, of misdirection, if you will. Maybe you, you're ashamed of, of it. Look, if we are, sin- we are sinning, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean we should live in a shameful way, in a way that is shamed, I mean. What it means is by you and I helping each other out, we look at each other and we both realize, okay, you've shared with me your difficulty. I've got them too. Let's work together and build each other up. Let it be a healing balm and not dishonesty being a healing bomb. That's really what we want to get here. So making sense of a desensitized world when we're looking inside of ourselves.
2: Realize that the darkness of the world is not only around you, but is within your imperfect human form. Embrace this so you can overcome it. Embrace the
1: fact that there's darkness inside of us and it's okay because we're born in sin, but we don't have to stay sinful in all of our thoughts and actions. We're never going to get rid of sin in this world, in this life rather, but we can put it in its place by putting God in His place. The real, this really shows us the battle to overcome sin is an everywhere and all the time effort. Never stop.
2: Does fighting off all these sinful tendencies mean we judge the world not worthy of our presence?
0: every episode we cover a lot of ground part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week rick and jonathan want to hear more comments and questions talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com through all our social media channels and download our app by searching christian questions in your app store now since we have puzzle pieces everywhere let's put those pieces together
1: This is where we can get really confused. We built this whole case for staying away from things that are desensitized, and yet we're absolutely supposed to engage with those of the world. Well, Why? That's what Jesus did, and we're to follow in his footsteps. I mean, look, how else can we witness to the plan unless we walk in the steps of Jesus? There's no other way.
2: And Rick, think about the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. And how Jesus exposed their hypocrisy, where they were looking down on the mere men of Israel, looking at them as second-class citizens. Um, we don't want to follow their example. Yeah, we want to follow Christ's example. Yeah, being and- kind and helpful and being a blessing and encouraging one another.
1: So the the idea then to answer your original question, you know. We don't judge the world as not worthy of our presence, no, no no, 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 no. We judge the world as the place in which we develop christ' likeness and the way and the place in which we could plant examples to others. They may not listen. that doesn't matter. Just plant the examples don't don't have that condescension like you said. It's such an important thing and and here here's the end result of all of this sin from that Isaiah chapter five prophecy verses eighteen to twenty four we're now up to verse twenty four
2: Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blown away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel.
1: So the judgment of God against unrighteousness in this prophecy is telling us it's always the same. Godlessness produces destruction, and because God is merciful— we know that Jesus' ransom eventually gives everyone a fair chance. That's right. So that's a good. That's the good news. Even those who are engaged in sin will get an opportunity because of the ransom of Jesus. But what am I doing right here, right now? I don't need to be worried about them. I need to be worried about me standing firm in the principles of righteousness, so I remain sensitized to the sin around me. Uh, this is this is this is important. So. Jonathan, let's get to a really important core principle as we begin to wrap this up. Every, we all know that Jesus loves us, right? That's right. Absolutely. Well, does this mean that Jesus accepts us as we are? Jesus does love you, but to properly answer the acceptance question, we also need to ask, how much do we love Jesus? So are we saying, well, wait, Jesus may love us but not accept us as we are? Let's listen. Let's follow through a couple of scriptures here. First of all, uh, John chapter 14, verse 23.
2: Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him.
1: So our selfless love toward Jesus is
2: unequivocally
1: expressed in keeping his words.
2: Well, Rick, what does it mean to keep his word? He's being very specific here.
1: Yeah, he's saying, you know, you 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 you, if you love me, you will keep in other words, keeping my word. You will do, you will live as I have instructed. It's not saying, Oh, you're gonna love what I said. That's not keeping his word. Keeping his word is taking his words and turning them into the actions of your life. That's what he meant. That's why being a footstep follower of Jesus is literally walking the walk, doing what he did. That's keeping his word. Have no other God before me and don't covet. (laughs) The first and last commandment are going to just, they just continue to come through here. Okay, now let's go to a really good example of Jesus, and this is shocking to, to many Jesus loving someone, but not accepting them as they are. And the person we're going to talk about is a good person, but yet Jesus is not accepting him as he is. You can say, what? Jesus accepts everybody. Listen to this. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 25. We're going to break it up into pieces just for 17 to start.
2: As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?
1: Okay, so this is the, the the story of the rich young ruler. This young man shows humility, respect, and sincerity, and he gets Jesus' attention because those are legitimate qualities that this guy has. He
2: is a good man,
1: he's absolutely. A, he's a good man. So Jesus' words in verses 18 through 19, we're not going to read them, but he basically says, follow the law already given to you, live with honor, live with integrity, and live with respect. You know, and Jonathan, for us today... It's it's living up to the highest God-driven standard available aside from sacrifice. But Jesus, the, the young man says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, live in accordance with the Jewish law that you've been given. Okay, What's the young man's response? Verse 20, just read verse 20, Jonathan. I want to stop there for one second.
2: And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth.
1: You know, and it's interesting because... He's saying, but I've been working at this my whole life. He's not being cocky here. I don't think he's being cocky at all because Jesus, read, read just the next phrase before Jesus' words. Looking at him,
2: Jesus felt a love for him.
1: Okay. We can see that Jesus saw him and saw he was a sincere man. He was a good man, like you said before, but he wasn't a sanctified man. And Jesus was about to tell him what was now to be required of him. So then just go back, start with verse 21 again.
2: Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property.
1: So Jesus essentially said, you're a good man, but if you want to follow me, you need to do something different. Jesus loved him, but didn't accept him as a follower because he wasn't willing to divest himself of his, of his worldly life.
2: So that takes away the concept, if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven.
1: It does. It really does. Jesus <laughs> Jesus blew it up right there, okay? Jesus' words. He respects the man's life and now shows him an even higher way. Divest yourself of all that you hold so dear and follow in Jesus' sacrificial footsteps. And it was too much for the man. And again, Jonathan, have no other God before me and thou shalt not covet. In other words... Stay focused on, on serving God and God alone. And now the disciples are all upset, like, whoa, if, if, he, can't, if he can't make it, this is, this is, this is crazy for us. Verses 23, and 20, 23 through 25.
2: And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So here's the key. Jesus loved the man, but the kingdom
1: of God was not for him at that moment. Now, there are some that say that this rich young ruler later on came back and followed Jesus. That may very well be true, okay? But at this moment, he wasn't ready to be a follower of Jesus. And Jonathan, there's a difference between the... Uh, being given the opportunity for life from Jesus' ransom that every man, hum, every human being who will, will, whoever lived, will experience, and the calling to be a follower of Christ, and Jesus is saying, "You are not ready yet to be worthy of the calling to follow Me for that heavenly reward." That's what He was telling them. He loved this man, but the man did not love Jesus and the prospect for life enough to change. So when we say, well, you know, God's going to have to accept me as I am. Really? Okay? Don't make excuses to stay desensitized to sin. Rather say, God, I'm pretty flawed, and I want to follow you through Jesus. I'm going to have to change some things. I don't know how well I'm going to do. I'm going to need your help. But I need to, and I want to change. How do I find the
2: help to do it? That shows you love Jesus.
1: Yes. So, you know, the idea of being desensitized to sin is to say, well, you know, okay, I'm just me. No, 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 no. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just you. Understand, there's much more that can be potentially part of you if you're willing to divest yourself to become sensitized again and to grow through the difficulties. This is not easy. And none of us, Jonathan, ever actually succeeds in divesting ourselves, do we? No, we don't. Okay. But God takes the will for the deed, and he wants to see at least certain levels of progress. Like you said, each of us is very different. So this is something that's really important for us. One last soundbite, Jonathan, before we wrap this up. Again, from David Platt, We Soften Sin. And again, he's talking about calling sin something else just to make it sound better.
4: We're good at finding ways to sin and call it something else. Or we just become desensitized to sin. It's the point where we don't even notice it. It doesn't jar us to hear God's name taken in vain. We can watch hours of TV and movies and hardly even notice that. Do we realize what a dangerous position that is to be in? I guess that's the point we don't realize. We're dulled to sin.
1: You know that's a great phrase. We're dulled to sin; it doesn't jar us. And and Jonathan, we live in a world where being jarred by these things doesn't happen that often anymore. That's sad. Yeah, you know, know, the the idea of you know, and I'm guilty of saying this. You know, I read something that's just way off, and I say nothing surprises me. Well, it should. (laughs) (laughs) It should be like Rick. Look what's happening. How can this be? Folks, it's so easy to just be accepting of the things around us. Now, look, does it mean that we should be calling everyone and everything out? No. What it does mean is we should be standing on higher ground and being an example of what true righteousness, godly righteousness, true integrity, godly integrity, true effort, godly effort, what those things can do in a life versus things that are driven by human greed, and and, and so forth. There's a difference, and people will notice that you're living to a higher level. See, the problem is, we live in a day of a dramatic crisis of conscience. Morally, ethically, and very
2: much spiritually. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And Rick, uh, this verse really hits home because it's talking about Christianity, doctrines of demons, false Christian teachings, errors are being exposed more and more in the information age. Tradition, ceremony, doctrines that can be seen so much clearer through history, context, your favorite word, uh, through the original meaning in the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, going to definitions. And the question is, what if what I was always taught in church doesn't square with the Bible? What then?
1: Then become, de- become sensitized to, to what you have seen that is off, and say i need to do something about it so i can be right with god cuz that's the bottom line it's not about being right with everybody else it's not about going along to get along it's about standing on higher ground a godly ground through christ and so you know and and in the end of verse 2 by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron i mean the idea is that You've deadened the nerves. You just can't feel anymore. Folks, let's not get into that place. Let's make sure that we focus on Scripture, focus on prayer, focus on fellowship, focus on godly principles, every place and every way in in, in our lives so that we can stand for the higher things. Jonathan, what's our final point as we wrap up? Making sense of a desensitized world.
2: As Christians, we are commissioned to love as Jesus did, to stand for what he stood for, to love righteousness and hate iniquity.
1: Love righteousness and hate iniquity. Folks, you know, this is such an important process to realize that to be desensitized to sin is natural, it's comfortable, it's easy and convenient and everywhere. Doesn't mean we go down that road. What it does mean is we need to set ourselves our minds and our hearts and our spiritual conscience to say I want to be like Christ I know I can't be but I can certainly be better than I am and today I'm taking a step and tomorrow another one and the day after another one find those of like faith and like conscience godly conscience that will walk with you to encourage you to stand above and sensitize yourself because that is how we bring glory to God For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today talking about a really important, very common problem of being too too desensitized to sin. Make sure you see it through God's eyes. Think about it. Folks, listen, we do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program subscribing to Christian Questions on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us, review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, how do I know my decisions are right? Talk to you then.